As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Uh, nomad land. Nomadland is a very, very interesting modern film. It's just recently been released on Disney Plus, and it tells the story of Fran. Fran is a symbolic of a longing in our hearts. And she, along with a number of Americans, find themselves on the way to the Arizona desert. Fran has experienced loss in countless ways. She's lost her husband. She's lost her house following the loss of her job. And all that she has is carried around in her van. All that she has to eat and cook and live and relax and enjoy and sustain and survive and sleep are in the four metal walls of her van. She's on the move, she's on the fringes of society and she needs employment. And this harrowing film tells the story of Fran's journey from loss and need to community and to belonging. It's a very, very interesting film because it tells the story of Fran's loss and emptiness becoming uh, slightly fuller and fullness. It's kind of symbolic of the story of Ruth in the Bible, actually. And just as uh, Nomadland and the book of Ruth are uh, portraits of our longings for family and stability and security, this whole thing that the Bible portrays from beginning to end of community is found once again in the book of Ephesians. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, right the way through to Ephesians chapter 4, focuses on the heartbeat of God seen in his people in the church. Ephesians 2, um, right the way through to Ephesians 4, is the centrality of God's heartbeat for his people, for the church. And here in our passage, beginning in verse 18 to 22, we're slowing right down because this is so rich. We see who we were, who we are, and how we can understand that more fully. Who we were, who we are, and how we can get there more fully. What does this passage say, beginning in verse 18 and 19, about who or what we were? Look at verse 19. It doesn't say we were nomads, but it's pretty close. Verse 19, Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens. The word there is xenos, from which we get xenophobic, when you're suspicious or antagonistic or hostile towards people from a different tribe or country to you. Now, a foreigner is an outsider. A foreigner is a stranger. Now, Joe and I have experienced this. We shared the same language as American friends, but we lived in a different culture. We lived in a different land. They spoke with a different accent, and they certainly had different food and music and culture. We enjoyed much of it. But it was a very interesting experience about what it feels to be uh, an alien, not with uh, saying moo, 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 or, or with horns on our heads or something like that, or in a distant galaxy far, far away, but we were outsiders. Now, that's okay if you live in America or you have a shared language, but if you don't have a shared language as well as a, a different culture, as well as different sorts of music and food, maybe your skin is a different color, maybe you, you have a different background and a different history, then you really do feel like an outsider. You can feel like an alien when you can't communicate. And like Fran in the film on the first slide, it's a profound sense of loneliness and separation. Paul has the audacity to say that the work of God and Jesus Christ means that you are foreigners and aliens and separated no more. God in Christ has done something. So alienation is a thing of the past. Separation, that's been dealt with. This wall of hostility has been removed and broken down. But who's he talking to? Remember back up in verse 11 and verse 12, Paul is saying twice, the same word, xenos, you were separated, you were far apart, you were aliens to the covenant, you were without hope and without God in the world. You were not literally foreigners, but you were spiritually foreigners. You knew the people in your street, you knew who you lived with, you shared the same language, you wore the same clothes, you had shared experiences. You weren't literally foreigners, let's say. If you were Jew, you knew Jew. If you were Gentile, you knew Gentile, friends. But in Christ, you're now one new people. Paul's talking about a spiritual reality that we see in Psalm 90 as one. Our hearts are longing for belonging. They're longing for community. They're longing for love and for acceptance. And in Psalm 90, the, the biblical theme of separation that we read of after the enjoyment of a perfect relationship with God in Genesis 1 and 2, we see separation in chapter 3. And, and that uh, drumbeat is resonating all the way through the Bible. We have a longing to be home. We have a longing to be accepted. We have a longing to know joy of relationship and deep community. And that's only found when God rescues us. You know the reality of home? Home, it says in this TV show of Cheers, is where everybody knows your name. 
But uh, a home is where your desires are revealed. <laughs> Pictures on the screen of uh, what it might look like to live in a dream home with a swimming pool. I quite fancy a swimming pool, although if I didn't have to maintain it, it would be a pain. Quite like uh, one of those houses where the cooker is huge and uh, where the heating bill is paid by someone else and the garden is immaculate. I like one of those homes. But a home is where things are just the way you like them. Whether it's an apartment you rent or a home that you bought, home is where everybody knows your name. But Paul in this sentence, sentence 19, is saying, I want to remind you of this great biblical teaching that we are separated from God because of our sin. But God in Christ has won himself a people. And you're invited to a place where all your longings will be deeply and eternally met. But that's not in a place on earth. That's in the church. God's eternal dwelling place. Outside of God, verse 12, this is where you were. This is what you were like. You were without God and you're without hope. Until we know the joy of a perfect relationship with God found only through Christ, sustained by his spirit, we will always be nomad-like. We'll always be strangers. We'll always be aliens. But God in Christ has welcomed us and drawn us to himself, which is home. And that foretaste of heaven, which is seen in the church, is what we really want to understand, not through the first point, what we were, but through the second point, who we are. What has God done in Christ? Who are we? There's these three great images. Secondly, not who we were, what we were, but what are we now? If we're Christians, if we know God through Christ, then these three pictures that we see in verses 19 through to verse 21 are so important. Look at verse 19. The first picture is we're fellow citizens. That's the language of a nation. Someone that is uh, identifiable to a country or a people group by a passport. You belong, and that's identifiable by your passport with God's people, with fellow citizens, with a whole bunch of other people, whether they be from Vietnam, from Italy, from uh, Kazakhstan. I was about to make up a country ending in Stan, but I stopped myself. But um, Kyrgyzstan, whatever country it is, we are fellow citizens because of the work of Christ with other people. Secondarily, we're members of God's household, verse 19 once again. If you're part of a household, that means we're God's children. We're sons and daughters of the king. The image of family. So a nation and household. 30, verse 21, we're stones of a living temple. This is the image of God's dwelling place. So three images of nation, family, and household. Now, these are not accidental, and I want you to see as we meditate on these three images before we dig into each one, notice how the relationship with God and with the relationship with our fellow man, our fellow Christian, intensifies as Paul paints the picture and develops them through each one. Think through these three, how Paul describes our relationship with God and how it deepens through these three. A king lives in a country he's known by his subjects it's the image of nation but a father lives under the same roof in the same household as his children but we are also a part of god's temple god doesn't just live near the stones he dwells in everyone as god gathers his people 
and are made living stones in dwelling of his Holy Spirit. We're no longer far away in a nation. We're no longer just in a household where we rub shoulders with each other. God actually dwells in the midst of his people. This shows the relationship as it intensifies in our understanding of who God has made us in Christ by his spirit. But also think about the uh, pictures and how they show us how we relate to one another. That also intensifies in that way. You're co-citizens of a nation, so you don't live uh, miles apart from one another. With the same passport, you could live on different continents, but be part of the same nation. If you're a boy or a girl growing up in the same home, brothers and sisters, you don't live uh, meters away. Your your jaw and well, tooth and gal, tooth and jowl, is that the phrase? You're on top of each other. You, you live in the midst of one another. You rub shoulders to one another. You bundle with each other, at least at a certain age. Your stones as well of a temple, which means you're interconnected. You're hewn from the same rock. There's no distance between stones and connection in a building. Okay, a bit of mortar, you could say, well, that's 10 millimeters in the common wall from construction days, but you're close. And so there's an intensification of our relationship as we understand that we're part of the same nation and family and dwelling place for God, but also in our relationship one to another as well. Paul is painting a clear picture through these three images to say there is no more profound force in the universe for shaping a people than the gospel. It's a profound force that changes our identity. It's an identity we saw last week in verses 11 to 18 that is bestowed to the beloved, which is given to God's people. Not something that we earn or accrue. It's something that's given to us. It changes our understanding of ourselves, our relationship with other people, our relationship to God. It's the most profound and changing force in the universe. We're one with one another. We're united to God and therefore we're united to one another because of Christ in the gospel. That's all truth out there, but what does it mean? Let's rub it in and apply it. It means deep relationships. It means a close community of a spiritual nature. Here are some of the implications. If we are that close by the force of the gospel, what does it mean? What a great picture. It means, firstly... If we are not just a nation, if we're not just a household, but if we are a spiritual temple, let's meditate on those three things. It means that God has made us as the church for personal accountability. For personal accountability. Think about the image of a household for deep relationship. Here is chaos, a bit too close to home sometimes. But think about the image of a close-knit household. If you've got siblings of different age growing up, I'm sure there was a bottom that you saw or perhaps you wiped or perhaps was wiped. Let's not go into too much oversharing. But there is absolutely no chance of distance in a home. Sometimes you long for it. Let's build another cabin. Let's build another shed. I just want to go to the bottom of the garden and eat worms. I just want some space. In a household, it's very hard. It's very hard to get any time in any space. In a household, you're on top of each other. No facades. No privacy. Closeness. Intimacy. Relationality, if that's even a proper word. 
but there is transparency. The facade drops to the floor and they see your good days and the majority of them, which are your bad days. That's what it's like to live in a household. Paul is saying, verse 19, you are members of the household of God. You're God's household. God is in the midst of you. That's a temple dwelling language. But you're part of a household, which means deep relationships are possible because of what God has done. And they're also necessary. And they're also a great blessing. So you can't be private about your faults. You can't be private about your struggles. You can't be private about your worries. Or should we say you shouldn't be? You can, can't you? You can let people go only so deep. You can keep people at arm's length. But the language of the household means that you shouldn't be. There's a longing for Fran who lost her husband, her home, her employment, and she's longing for community and she finds it not in the confines of our own trailer or van, but she finds it in a community of people who are struggling in the Arizona desert in the film called No Man Land. This is saying the church is not a place for you to keep your sins private. Is there someone with whom you know something of the reality of personal, deep community and accountability? Is there someone who knows your heart struggles? We don't just want to know people's names. The Bible says there's a capacity and a power and a longing to know people's hearts. Because you're not trying to keep up the facade. So we're part of God's household, which means personal accountability. Don't keep people at arm's length. Don't just know their names. Know their hearts. Here's the second point. These images say, don't just deepen to the point of personal accountability. I want to share this with you. I want to, to give you a hunting license so that we can go after sin together in my life and in your life as well. It's also about deepening relationships to whole life hospitality whole life hospitality. Now we hear the word hospitality and we think expense, we think cost, we think loss of freedom and uh, needing to uh, diarize things. Notice I've not put a hamper, notice I've not put a full table spread of food because it's costly and it's expensive. True hospitality, it's my conviction, is far more like that. So bacon sarnies, whatever you've got, um, in your fridge. It could be a piece of cucumber. It could be a mug of coffee. Whatever you've got, as long as your heart is open to share what you have with your resources and time and energies, that is not just about accountability, it's whole life hospitality. Think. A pupil, a pupil goes to school. A pupil goes to school and learns together boys and girls they learn together colleagues work in person at an office or they work remotely from the home so if you've got a hobby you go to a club and you enjoy the hobby in person or remotely and then you log off or go back to the bus to get home verse 19 god's household is lives lived together now i'm not unaware that we've been in covid for 15 months so there are some real challenges in our time for what hospitality looks like. But let me challenge you and say, is it even on your radar within the restrictions? There are still many opportunities that we can connect one to another. And hospitality means letting people into your real life. 
letting people into your homes as appropriate, letting people into your gardens when you can, sharing a picnic, going out and meeting on a park bench, doing whatever you can, going for a walk and talking and pouring out your heart together. Not just sharing your diary, but sharing your life, sharing your heart, sharing your purse, sharing your larder, sharing your picnic rug at two meters apart, and so on. Once again, do you know people's names or do you know their hearts? Paul is saying, are you accountable to people in the household? Are you sharing food, let's say, one another, one anothering in the household? Let's not make excuses because hospitality is hard, it is costly, it is time-consuming. But within the opportunities that we do have, do you have a heart and a desire to be hospitable as we seek to grow in our relationships within the household of God, within the temple of God? That's the third point after accountability and hospitality. What about spiritually as well? We are stones in this living temple. So as we seek to grow, will we grow in accountability and hospitality, but also in a shared spirituality as a temple? Look in verse 21 again. In him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. God dwells by his spirit. We hear in the Western ear, in every Christian heart. The image of the temple is one of building blocks and stones. And being Western Christians, we hear God is in each block. And that's right. But notice here, the image is corporate. It's a, a dwelling place, verse 22 for God, in which he lives by his spirit. It's a commonality in corporate. A wall is not one block or one brick. God comes down and he dwells in his temple and he inhabits us together. We know more of God as we connect one to one. A bunch of us gather for prayer or walking and the topic is what God is doing in our hearts and lives. We know far more of God in Christ when we gather together with other Christians because they share stuff that God is teaching them and we can share with what God is teaching us. Think of the curse of modern football, which is VAR, the replay. You think it's a goal and you're a Chelsea supporter. Thankfully, it's cast off because they were miles offside by millimetres and Leicester won the FA Cup. VAR is a right pain, but sometimes it's helpful because truth is seen from different angles and normally, normally the right decision is made. Think about that time when you can actually go and try clothes on again in a shop and you take a friend with you because you want their opinion. Do I look okay in this? Do these glasses look fine on me or not? Perhaps you have clothes sent you, mail order, and you try them on at home. But still you want a second opinion because you're not sure if your perception is right. Whether it's VAR, whether it's putting clothes on, we learn a lot about reality through shared experience with other people. And notice that all of these images are corporate, nation, corporate, household, corporate, dwelling place of God in the temple, corporate. Very often, I think we want to keep our relationship with God private. We want to uh, 
not ask anyone how our prayer life is or if we've read the Bible of if God has been seen working in our lives because we're scared and perhaps because we want to keep our relationship private rather than understanding that the gospel mainly is corporate. Perhaps we're ashamed, perhaps we're guilty, perhaps we're concerned. The Bible speaks very little of the individual Christian, far more, far more about the plural, notice the imagery, of household, family, and temple. It is possible, of course, to know Jesus by yourself. It's possible to know much of God's blessing and the Spirit's presence and help in your life individually, but you'll know far more and your walk will be so much more rich and you will bless other people if you grab hold of these corporate images of household, family and temple. That's what Paul was praying at the end of chapter one, wasn't it? Paul prays for his readers and he prays for us in the church that we would know the surpassing power of God in the world. And then he starts talking about the implications and where does he go? To the church. So there is an indelible link between experiencing the power of God in your life and the, your understanding, your theology, your involvement and commitment to the local church. The implications are very strong. You want to know more of the power of God in your life? Get involved in the local church. Meet with a bunch of Christian women if that's helpful to you ladies. Meet and walk with a bunch of Christian blokes on Thursday night by the cricketers. Because then you will know more of the power of God in your life. As you see different aspects of God's character. I've never seen that about God before. It happened on Crosslands just two Sunday nights ago. Someone said, never seen that about uh, God before. Never seen that in the Bible before. And boy, do we need to regain this understanding after 15 months of predominant isolation and self-sufficiency. Hopefully we've learned and be reminded of the power and importance and the need of Christian community more than any other time of the church's experience, perhaps. So let's bless each other in the future with opportunities to embrace tomorrow, perhaps masks off at the right time in the summer. Lots of opportunities to be sensitive to where people are in response to COVID. Let's be wise, but let's be accountable to one another as we grow in deep relationships. Let, let's be hospitable and let's share what God has been teaching us spiritually. That's who we are. What we were, that's who we are. But just like Daniel Greenhill may say, sometimes we need to mind the gap between those two realities. So how do we bridge the gap between what we were and who we are? Because sometimes there's a huge gap. Thirdly, how can we really become what we are? How can we really become what we are? Now, later in the letter, in the Ephesians 4.3, Paul writes this. He says, you need to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Talk about the church once again. He says, he doesn't say you've got to attain it. Here's something if you work hard and pull your sleeves up, you can attain the unity of the Spirit. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you need to create it. God in Christ has already given unity in the Spirit to the church. He says it's possible for you to ruin it. It's possible for you to explode it, to ignore it. But actually what I want you to do under God's power is to maintain the unity of the spirit. It says that chapter four, verse three. Here in chapter two, verse 22, he says something very similar. In him, you two 
are being built together to become a dwelling. There's, there's a process going on. God, by his spirit, is binding Christians one to another. So if you're saying, well, actually, the reason I don't want to open my heart up to the people because church is messy and I might get hurt. It is messy and you might. I don't want to open up my home or my picnic rug because actually it's too costly and I love my privacy. Well, notice two things about the church. Verse 20. Most commentators agree that verse 20 is a description of the Old and New Testament. Notice upon what the church is built as, as Paul goes for the mind. He says, verse 20, it's built upon the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. It's a shorthand way of saying the church is built on the truth of God and the gospel. The gospel that's prophesied from the Old Testament looking forward and the gospel that's proclaimed in the apostles. The church is built on the truth of the gospel. But Paul doesn't just address our minds. He also addresses our affections and our hearts. Verse 20. How is Jesus described? He's described as the cornerstone. Now, that means a lot. But it means stability to a building. It means structure to a building. It means soundness to a building. So the church is not just built on a concept of truth. It's built on a person who defines what truth is. So let me ask you, is Jesus not just the cornerstone of the church, but is he your cornerstone? Or to quote Pink Floyd, or are there other bricks in the wall? I don't mean that to be cheesy, but what are you building your life upon? Whose voices are you listening to? If Jesus is the cornerstone in your life, just as he is in the church, that means you have immediate connection to people in Vietnam who've been exiled to Germany the cause of justice in the church it means you're connected to this rag bunch of people wearing masks next to you and those who can't be here on zoom when paul is talking about christ as the cornerstone he's saying he is the most important building block for the church founded on the truth of the gospel he's he's the most critical block and this is not a new thing to paul this is a theme throughout the bible there in the book of Isaiah, chapter 28. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. There in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And right in the Old Testament, whether it be the book of Isaiah or, or Psalms and other passages as well, Paul is building on this theme that says the key understanding that is that the the gospel is the foundation of the truth for the church, but the truth is also founded on the person and work and the sacrificial offering of King Jesus. And the church will be built on his work and on his person and on his nature, but only because the cornerstone will be rejected. Notice chapter 2, verses 12 to 19 again, or 12 and 19 rather. You are foreigners and you're aliens but now you're in the household of God. You were Zenos. You were part of a different tribe. You were far away, but God has brought you near. That is radical hospitality, not by a person, but by God. God has made you who are outsiders part of his community. We were foreigners. Now we've been brought close and the welcome mat has just not been laid out to keep our feet clean because that's in the very heart of God. To welcome people who are far away 
into his household and into his home, so to speak. Hospitality is costly. But let me tell you, nothing was more costly than this. Think of the status of Jesus on earth, fully man, fully God. He had nowhere to lay his home. He was a, his head. He was an outsider. Foxes have homes and so on. They have dens in which to live. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his home. He was, he was homeless. He wasn't just nomadic. He, he had nowhere to lay his home, his, his head. In his death, he was forsaken. He was crucified outside the gates in the cold and in the darkness. Jesus was in the household of God, but he was willing to forego that so that he might bring us close. We were foreigners and aliens being brought into his household. He was willing to be cast off. He was willing to lose everything so that we, so that our exile might be his. We were part of his home. We were in Eden under his blessing and loving rule, but we turned our backs on him and said, we do a far better job without you. Thank you very much. We wanted to live our little lives in our little self-sufficient way. We wanted to be in charge, no to your rules. We want to be masters. We don't want to live under your loving rule. We wanted to take credit for all of that that God has made. But instead of us receiving expulsion from God's presence eternally, Jesus Christ came and he was expelled. Jesus Christ came and he was radically lonely. Didn't even have a van to live in. Everybody forsook him. Everybody deserted him. Even his own father. He went to hell for me and for you. He experienced cosmic aloneness and separation. He became a foreigner. He was treated like an alien. All so that we could be brought into the household of God. Friends, you'll always be searching. You'll always be alone. You'll always want more longing and more acceptance. Until you find that in Christ alone, every of your deepest longings will be fulfilled. And he welcomes us into a community and a household of love that will last forever. Do you know something of the reality of that? Changes a person, opens their wallet, opens their heart, means they drop the facade and they can be open with their struggles and they can welcome other people into their home as well. Radical, deep accountability and deep, solid relationships founded on Christ, the cornerstone. Generous hospitality, a real, deep, lasting, eternal spiritual community.